support the Sojourner Truth team getting back to Haiti. Um, we really need to go um, very, very soon. Um, more massacres going on, taking more testimony, um, sharing resources. Please, you can contribute to that cause. Uh, just again, you could email me directly at mpkpfk at gmail.com or email um, Sojourner uh, Truth Radio at uh, gmail. And of course, if you want to uh, support directly Haitians on the ground, you can go to the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund. Kevin, thank you so much for all of the work you've been doing for so many years. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Margaret. And uh, we are out of time. we got to dash out of here. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, uh, audio engineer, Mr. T. Teddy Robinson, assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. You are listening to KBOO Portland. The time is 9 a.m. Next up, we have the beloved community. John Shuck speaks with Philip Kraske about his novel, 11-9 and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees, a fictional story about a false flag terrorist plot to lead the U.S. to war. Sound familiar? KBOO Community Radio wants to hear from you, our dear listeners and members, about why you support KBOO, why you listen, and why others should support the radio station. Please call 503-231-8032, extension 302, and tell us your name, what KBOO means to you, and why do you continue to support KBOO. Again, that's 503-231-8032, extension 302. Thank you for supporting your community radio station, KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503 503- 231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, unless otherwise noted. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. Please join us. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. And this is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goals of justice and freedom. Let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, we will be able to live with people as our brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck. The Beloved Community is heard every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO, and then the program is sent to stations on the Pacifica radio network. It's also available on podcast. The website is progressivespirit.net. That's progressivespirit.net. Usually the program is live, but today's show is pre-recorded. I'm in San Diego this weekend speaking at a mosque. I'm a Presbyterian minister involved in interfaith work. Last year I had the opportunity to go to Karbala, Iraq, and participate in the largest yearly human gathering on earth Arba'in. Who knows how many people? 15 million? That's a low estimate. Perhaps 20 million, 30 million people converge on Karbala, Iraq to commemorate the martyrdom of Hussein, the grandson of Prophet Muhammad. I had a chance to go last year and I made a 30 minute film about it called For Love of Hussein. It just aired on Alul Bayt TV in London. You can watch it. On YouTube, search for Love of Hussein, H-U-S-S-A-I-N, for Love of Hussein. Or, or find a link uh, to it on my Facebook page. Search me, John Shuck. That's where I put a lot of my stuff, mostly Facebook page. 
Since then, since last year, I've been invited to a number of Shia mosques and conferences uh, to talk about my experience. I went to Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. I'm in San Diego this weekend, then travels to uh, New Jersey, Boston, and Seattle have been scheduled. It's a very interesting time in my life as I've been introduced to Islam, particularly the school of Alul Bayt, or the family of the prophet. My congregation is Southminster Presbyterian in Beaverton. It's across the street from the only a Shia congregation in Oregon, the Islamic Center of Portland, the Imam Mahdi Center. Beautiful people. Really just incredible. I commemorated with them the martyrdom of Hussein on Ashura, which this year was the 10th of September on the Islamic calendar, the 10th of Muharram. Again, such gracious people welcoming me to learn about Islam, to build relationships. Also this year, my congregation hosted the Great Prophet Muhammad Group for 13 days, from September 1st through the 13th. Each evening they participated in rituals to commemorate the martyrdom of Hussein. Hussein is an exemplar of sacrifice for justice and truth. Do check out my film about it, For Love of Hussein, on YouTube. Today's program is not about that. It's about September 11th. Conspiracy theorist. A couple of years ago, I did an interview with psychotherapist Fran Schur, who has written a series of articles entitled Why Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11. She talked with me about the weaponizing of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist to silence criticism of official narratives. Listen. Um, so I think one of the fears we fear the most, one of, the, one of our greatest fears, is to be ostracized by our family and by our friends. We fear being isolated. I think that's one of our human, uh, as human beings, that's one of our greatest fears. Uh, we're very social creatures, and we need our community to survive. So uh, we do everything we can to be as I say, in the middle of the bell curve, to be part of that community rather than to be ostracized or looked on with suspicion by that community. Uh, so the word, the term conspiracy theorist, Lance, Lance DeHaven Smith, who is a professor out of Florida State University, did some meticulous research looking into how this term became uh, a disparaging term. And what he discovered through his research is that um, the CIA, this is a conspiracy theory, conspiracy, the CIA uh, back in 1967, when a lot of very credible people were questioning the Warren Commission report on the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, uh, the CIA was saying, look, there's too much questioning about what happened here. They're even starting to blame us, the CIA, so we have to put a stop to this. So they sent out what they called a dispatch to their foreign in the in Europe, their foreign uh, press, their foreign um, agents, and these foreign agents got these talking points to the press in Europe, uh, and uh, and these talking points would say things like, "Oh, you know, somebody, no one can keep a secret. Somebody would have talked." Um, uh, these conspiracy theorists are just in their egos. They're conspiracy theorists, and they shouldn't be listened to. So after that, the the use of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist skyrocketed in the media and became an extremely effective operation by the CIA to condition us to fear being called conspiracy theorists. Fran Schuer from August 2017. Listen to the whole interview on my podcast page, progressivespirit.net. We've just passed the 18th anniversary of September 11th. My guest is Philip Kraske. He's the author of a novel, a work of fiction called 11-9, The Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. Here's a summary of that novel. 
Trudy Schelling, arrives at her company in Jersey City, New Jersey, to start her first day of work at Hollerby Net Research. The date is November 9th. Barely through the door, she's grabbed by a man in military garb, one of several in the brownstone townhouse, but fends him off, manages to escape. Twenty minutes later, six terrorists fleeing their botched job of planting a miniature atomic bomb in the Empire State Building screech to a halt in front of the same townhouse, three police cars on their tail. The terrorists run inside, and a hostage standoff ensues, the dozen hostages ostensibly being Hallerby employees. Pursued through the streets of Manhattan, Trudy knows that the attack is a false flag operation. In a matter of hours, she's portrayed in the media as the seventh terrorist of the group, and the entire country is baying for her blood. Her only hope is Paul Clippen, a State Department official whose lonely task is to expose the lies about her and stop war between the United States and Iran. End quote. Sound familiar? 9-11 researcher David Ray Griffin says of the novel, most of us who continue to do research on 9-11 focus primarily on the question of what really happened that day. There will eventually be a definitive answer to that question that can be summarized in a few pages. But what is the meaning of 9-11? What are its implications? Philip Kraske's superb thriller 11-9 and the terrorist who loved bonsai trees, as the title implies, holds up a mirror to 9-11, providing a way of understanding this horrendous event. That's David Ray Griffin talking about the novel 11-9. Philip Kraske is the author, and he's going to be coming up on the show. My interview with Philip Kraske uh, is is on the way, but first a couple of news items regarding 9-11. The big story this year is this. On September 3rd of this year, just a little over a week ago, the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department of the University of Alaska Fairbanks released its report of a four-year study on the destruction of World Trade Center 7, a 47-story steel-framed skyscraper that collapsed into its own footprint on the afternoon of September 11, 2001, at 5.20. It was not hit by a plane. This is what was reported by Dan Rather on that day, September 11th, 2001. Uh, amazing, incredible, pick your word. For the third time today, it's reminiscent of those pictures we've all seen too much on television before when a building was deliberately destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down. A moment of honesty when he reported what he saw with his own eyes. The propaganda machine kicked in quickly. The powers that be blew up three buildings in our faces and then said, no, they were not blown up. And we believed them. Now, faculty at the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks have shown scientifically what we have seen with our own eyes. This is the press release. On September 11, 2001, at 5.20 p.m., the 47-story World Trade Center Building 7 collapsed into its footprint, falling more than 100 feet at the rate of gravity for 2.5 seconds of its seven-second destruction. Despite calls for the evidence to be preserved, New York City officials had the building's debris removed and destroyed in the ensuing weeks and months, preventing a proper forensic investigation from ever taking place. Seven years later, federal investigators concluded that World Trade Center Tower 7 was the first steel-framed high-rise ever to have collapsed solely as a result of normal office fires. Today, we at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth are pleased to partner with the University of Alaska Fairbanks in releasing the draft report of a four-year computer modeling study of WTC-7's collapse conducted by researchers in the university department's of civil and environmental engineering. The UAF WTC7 report concludes that the collapse of World Trade Center Tower 7 on 9-11 was caused not by fire, but rather by the near simultaneous failure of every column in the building. End quote. You won't find this on any mainstream news outlet. Total media blackout. You can read the report at ae911truth.org, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. What happened? Well, obviously, it was a controlled demolition. 
David Chandler, who demonstrated that World Trade Center 7 fell at the acceleration of gravity for two and a half seconds, told me the implications of this in an interview I had with him last year. What if the only thing you know about Building 7 is it was in free fall? What are the implications? Uh, the implications are huge. Like, let me just start you down that road. If there are, if it was at free fall, therefore there are explosives. If there are explosives that had to be pre-planted, and as soon as you have anything happening before the day of 9-11, it involves foreknowledge that something's going to happen on 9-11, and it implies there's coordination between what you're doing, planting explosives there, and this hijacker thing. So the hijacker thing is not a surprise attack by a bunch of outside people. It's something that's a coordinated part of all of this. So just starting with the fact of free fall, you can get that. The hijack was a cover story. David Chandler on my Progressive Spirit podcast show from September 2018. This is a scientific study, not by kooks or cranks or conspiracy theorists, but by engineering faculty at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, an accredited American university. But you won't hear about it in mainstream news. Press TV, the English-speaking news outlet from Iran, broadcast the story. That says something. America has less press freedom than Iran. In other 9-11 news, this is also from the website Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, ae911truth.org. Quote, on the 18th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, 9-11 first responder Christopher Joya, a commissioner of the Franklin Square and Munson Fire District in New York, announced the launch of the Justice for 9-11 Heroes campaign at a news conference at the National Press Club. In July, Mr. Joya and the four other commissioners of the Franklin Square and Munson Fire District unanimously approved a resolution calling for a new investigation into the September 11th attacks. Two of Joya's fellow commissioners are suffering chronic health effects from working at Ground Zero, and one of the department's members, Thomas J. Hetzel, who was also a member of the New York Fire Department, was killed in the line of duty that day. The Franklin Square and Munson Fire District is now spearheading efforts throughout New York State and across the country to unite the fire service behind their call for Congress to reopen the 9-11 investigation. The congressional inquiry they are seeking would be conducted in parallel with the ongoing grand jury investigation initiated by U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman. Mr. Joya was joined at the news conference by Bob and Helen McElvain, whose son Bobby was killed at the World Trade Center. For the past two years, Mr. McElvain has led a campaign in his son's name to introduce and enact draft legislation that would establish a select committee of Congress to, re to reinvestigate the World Trade Center's destruction. Also present were David Meiswinkel, who is the president of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, and architect Richard Gage, founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. By the way, they were both on my show earlier this year. Mr. Meiswinkel discussed his organization's current litigation against the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI. Mr. Gage outlined the recently released findings of a four-year computer modeling study of World Trade Center Building 7's collapse by researchers at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, which AE911Truth funded, end quote. And so that's that all happened on September 11th, that big news conference. Go to Architects and Engineers for 9-11-Truth, AE911Truth.org for details. On a personal note, I'm a member of Religious Leaders for 9-11-Truth. I signed that statement nearly 10 years ago for spiritual reasons. One of the Ten Commandments, number eight or nine, depending on how you count them, reads... Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. In other words, don't lie about people. Muslims have been lied about, blamed for a crime they did not commit. They have been punished. Millions, millions, tens of millions have been killed due to the fraudulent war on terror based on the false flag attack of 9-11. Governments overthrown, people bombed, Sanctions, Islamophobia, trillions of dollars spent on destruction and death. 
The American people have been duped and deceived by the largest propaganda campaign in history. It is destroying our soul. Graham McQueen has done important work documenting the well over 100 first responders and witnesses who heard explosions from the three World Trade Center towers. These witnesses have been dismissed, treated like rabble. His is a call to fight for our citizenship. They are showing not only disrespect, they're they're really showing a, a very degraded notion of what a citizen is. They're treating us like rabble. Uh, who are, you know, uh, can be easily dismissed. So, so people are supposed to listen to, um, say, U.S. elites who were not even there that day when they say there were no explosions, instead of listening to their fellow human beings who were there and who clearly perceived it. This is a democracy in trouble. This is a democracy that's headed for in da- uh, to big danger. And unfortunately, it's not just the U.S. My own country, Canada, our government buys all this nonsense as well. And so it's the job of citizens to stand up and say we are whole persons. And our perception, you know, our sense of smell and, and hearing and sight and touch, they're valid. And, uh, and, and we know how to use our intelligence And we're going to insist now. We're going to speak out loudly for what we believe is the truth. Graham McQueen from September 2018 on my podcast, Progressive Spirit. My guest today has published a novel about the meaning of 9-11. It's called 11-9, The Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. He's Philip Kraske, and he's with me from Madrid, Spain, via Skype. Well, thanks for having me on, John. You are. You grew up in the United States, uh, Detroit. Went to a university in, in Minnesota, and then moved to Madrid. So, uh, can can you give a little background about about that? And and, and who is Philip Kraske? Well, I uh, I'm from uh, Minnesota, uh, actually from a town not far from Garrison Keillor's uh, Lake Wobegon. His uh, ah. inspiration for that. Um, I. Uh, came to Madrid uh, to study my third year of college, which uh, would have been uh, the 79-80 school year, if you can believe that, and uh, I then I returned to uh, uh, the U of Minnesota, finished my degree in international relations. I spent a little more than a year in South America, mainly in Quito, Ecuador, which is where my uh, fourth book is, uh, is set. A very interesting city. And uh, then uh, I moved back to Spain in 1985, and I married here, and I've been here ever since. So, well, what's it uh, like being in Spain looking back at the United States? Uh, do you, you keep up with uh, what's happening here? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, I, uh, in fact, I even continue to write uh, commentary about international politics and, of course, mainly America. You know, when you live abroad, um, you can see your own country for both the trees and woods. Um, You know what it's like living there. You understand the political culture of the place, but you can see it from outside as well. You see it with much more uh, perspective than people who live there. And so that's uh, been very important to me in, in my commentary and, and also uh, in, in my, uh, uh, my novels. And you have written, uh, what, five novels now? Yes, uh, Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees is uh, number five. And that's the one we want to talk about today, as this show is going to be about actually 9-11. So tell me about the title, first of all, 11-9, and the terrorists who love bonsai trees. It's uh, David Greg Griffin said it's a mirror image of, of 9-11. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it's um, 11-9 is the drama, the drama of a, uh, a big terrorist attack in America. And the terrorists who love bonsai trees is the comedy side and uh, the novel is sort of weaves together both of them and uh, the the comedy I think sort of uh, highlighting the drama of the book tell us a little bit about uh, about this book give us a summary if you would all right just uh, in a few words uh, the story starts when uh, Trudy Schelling who is uh, a quiet conservative uh, statistician she arrives at her 
company for her first day of work. It's a digital marketing firm. And uh, the company is in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, which is right across the river from Manhattan. Well, she goes in, and there are these paramilitary guys all over the place. And a bunch of dead people laid out in the living room. One of the paramilitaries tries to grab her, but she gets away. 20 minutes later, a car with six terrorists who's just botched their job of planting a bomb in the Empire State Building. They pull up to the same house with the police on their tail. They run inside. There's a hostage standoff. The hostages ostensibly being employees of the company. Well, this ends badly, and because the majority of the terrorists are discovered to be Iranian, well, the United States now wants to go to war with Iran. So what we have is a false flag op that ends in war with Iran, which might sound familiar. Um, so on one side, you have the story of Trudy, who is presented to the public as one of the terrorists, uh, running from the people uh, chasing her because she knows that the whole event was staged. And on the other side is Paul Clippin, an American State Department official, who's trying to keep a sort of deep state cabal from starting a war with Iran. And uh, those are the two sides of the story. At about the midpoint of, this, of the novel, they come together, and then uh, a lot of sparks fly. And tell me about um, uh, your thoughts uh, regarding uh, the, the real, uh, perhaps we can talk about it in, in a sense, the real deep state. I mean, that, that term now has kind of been poisoned uh, with President Trump using it for many people, but it obviously is, is something that exists, uh, uh, you know, the government goes on, people behind the scenes uh, who really make the power plays. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes and no. Um, nobody really knows that much about what the deep state is. Deep state, of course, is a, is a wonderfully dark term, isn't it? Uh, but on the one hand, it's the people who are always there year after year, decade after decade, the people who are running the foreign policy, the military policy, security policy, and they sort of move American policy in one direction. Um, presidents come, presidents go, but these people basically keep things going the way they want to. In my novel, I present the deep state as just a, a sort of a round table of people, each of whom represents a different constituency. Uh, one represents the oil markets, two of them represent the financial, one international, one, one domestic. Um, another one represents the military security complex, uh, and, and so on. And among these people, they make these decisions about uh, different uh, ways to influence uh, the direction of uh, especially foreign policy. And that's... Um, that's how I, I uh, portray it, although there are lots of other ways. I, I didn't want to make a scenario where you have a lot of tense Marines standing around and, you know, uh, bodyguards and this and that. My, my deep state uh, looks more like a, a sort of a support group for divorced parents. <laughs> I, because, of course, that's, that's the, uh, the, the illusion, too, isn't it, uh, that there's... That uh, everything that the the government tells us is well, we we should mostly believe it. I mean, they may do some bad things, but really, they wouldn't do really bad things like the things that are done uh, in your novel. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always hard to know how much uh, the deep state is involved and and how much uh, other actors are involved, uh, ones that we know about. Um, as I say, it's very difficult to make any comments about it or. Um, write accurately about it. So I just invent my own. One of the things that always bothers me about uh, different commentators is they say, oh, the CIA did that, and the CIA had influence there, and they did that. And I say, well, you know, how do you, how do you find out things about what exactly the CIA is doing? I mean, those are pretty, those are pretty tight-lipped people. But uh, anyways, um, I make my, my deep state uh, credible, and feasible, but, uh, uh, you know, of my own invention. Well, I want to talk with you about uh, a novel such as this one, Eleven Nine and the Bonsai Trees, from, uh, as a fiction, uh, 
But on the other hand, of course, uh, 9-11 certainly is is a reality. And and what is behind that? Can can you offer your thoughts on uh, on 9-11 itself? Well, my own uh, uh, feeling is that this was a an operation that was very much controlled from the American end. Whether whether or not it was controlled from the beginning, or whether or not the um, American intelligence sort of caught on to this plot and then helped nurse it along and made it worse with. Um, explosive device planted in uh, the Twin Towers beforehand. That, of course, uh, we don't know. But but it was, I think, uh, very clearly uh, an operation that was planned um, was or nursed along by Americans because they had some specific goals about getting America maybe into the Middle East and also uh, just... Uh, making a big boost to the military security uh, sector, which, of course, uh, has been the result of this. Yeah, many of these uh, wars and and, uh, so-called war on terrorism uh, has has been planned, perhaps some have said, uh, quite years before the actual events of 9-11. Yeah, although um, my own own feeling about... uh, you know, the sort of uh, historical um, uh, sort of point of view of 9-11 is that the the motives behind it were were basically two. First of all, in in the classic decline of America that uh, America is going through, the the classic decline of empire that America is going through now, 9-11 marks the beginning of the drive for power of the military security sector. They are replacing sort of the rich plutocracy that has run America roughly since the Reagan period. And uh, plutocracy is the next to last step in in, uh, in the uh, process of empire. It's followed by military dictatorship. Although I think that uh, the forms of democracy will always be kept in place. The, the other thing is that the, the purpose of 9-11, the other purpose, was just to change the conversation completely. Before we had communism, and now we have terrorism, which suits uh, the deep state much more, because terrorism is uh, is, is what? It's a ghost. It's, it's anything you want it to be. Uh, communism was backed by a country with borders and a capital and a currency. But terror is, uh, is anything, you know, you can call it anything, even the Poor immigrants coming up from Central America are called terrorists, and uh, you see this with Homeland Security. This is uh, uh, what uh, the, the effort to control what little of America the uh, military security complex doesn't control already. And uh, do you think, you mentioned to some international, I mean, some people have talked about not only just the United States, but also interests of uh, Israel involved in 9-11. Do you get into that in your novel at all? No, not a bit, not a bit. Uh, There are indications of Israeli involvement in 9-11. It's possible to me nothing has ever, uh, concrete has ever uh, uh, come up. Uh, All of the... um, evidence that is adduced to suggest Israeli involvement is is purely circumstantial. And, well, okay, there might be something to it and there might not. So, uh, okay, so we've talked a little bit about kind of your thoughts about uh, the the 9-11, the false flag, uh, and and now you write it, but you write it uh, about it in a fictional form. And I'm thinking of another person who's done a similar kind of thing named James Howard Kunstler. He talked about, he was writing a book on peak oil uh, early uh, in around 2005, I think, the long emergency. But then he started writing novels, and uh, which really talked about you know what 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 is what is going to happen, the future of of these kinds of things. And I'm thinking um, the novels enabled people to get into uh, to be able to read what sometimes a uh, a nonfictional book couldn't. Can you talk about uh, that the, the the ability that you have uh, by writing fiction <clears throat> that nonfiction doesn't have? Well, with with fiction, you have a much better chance to synthesize events rather than analyze. And so 
you put together uh, in, for example, in my book, I look at um, the uh, different aspects of 9-11, um, the, the point of view of the, the victims, uh, Trudy, for example, who is being called a terrorist, the people who put it together in the deep state, and their, their motives are, are uh, you know, that uh, this is what's good for the country, and they have their, their point of view as well. And in fiction, you can sort of give it a, a basic idea, um, a general idea of the whole event, and you can say, well, this is what I found. This is what seems to me essential about it. And um, that, I think, is, is very important in, in a novel. Um, much more, um, because we have, you know, we have plenty of information. We have plenty of, um, we're sort of overwhelmed with information, really. And uh, a novel, I think, of this type synthesizes what's going on in society. And it gives people, I think, an access where they may turn off um, from hearing about things, such as uh, how the, how the media uh, work uh, to deceive us. For example, the, the media involvement in, in silencing all uh, criticism. Yeah, one of the, the points that I try to make in my book is that nobody is telling reporters, say this, don't say that. That's not it at all. Reporters know instinctively how to cover events like 9-11, which is uh, a matter that touches national security. And in national security, mainstream reporters follow the government line. You know, they, em they embroider it, they talk about the victims and, and do profiles, but they do not touch the government line. And they sort of resent, I think, the truthers, the people who go after you know, the, the event afterwards and, and they um, investigate because the truthers are not, uh, are not bound by these conventions. And whenever you talk to a reporter about 9-11 truth, the immediate answer is hostility. All oh, these people are just a bunch of kooks. And uh, Our conspiracy the they, they, they resent them because they have uh, more freedom and because they uh, they can go after the the oddities and the the coincidences and the loose ends of it, and mainstream report, reporters cannot do that. And if they do report on something around nine eleven, they have to use the word conspiracy theorist or conspiracy theory a number of times in order to uh, what disparage uh, the truthers, as you would say. Oh yeah, they uh, they are very careful in presenting any alternative views um, as being, well, you know, a little bit beyond the pale, not really serious, interesting conjecture, but nothing concrete, etc., etc., etc. They're very clever about how they do it, and some of them are, are really damn cynical about it. Well, uh, some cynicism here. Uh, just on September 3rd, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, the Department of Engineering, uh, Civil Engineering and Environmental Engineering, did a, completed a four-year report on uh, the uh, de demolishing of Building 7, World Trade Center Tower 7, a 47-story steel-framed skyscraper that uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology said came down by fire. And, of course, this report says, no, it, couldn't, it didn't happen that way. Um, yet... I, I, is it in the news in Spain? Uh, there, we, we were trying to no. find. I can't find it on any mainstream uh, media outlet here uh, at all. No, the mainstream media here is very much like in the states. They stick to uh, the official version and nothing else. Uh, I saw just you know since you mentioned it, I saw about the first twenty minutes of the presentation that uh, those scientists gave, and. Uh, I sort of stopped when they got into the technicalities of it because, of course, I, I can't judge any of the technicalities. But one of the things that really uh, impressed me about it was how careful they were about their methodology, using different types of architectural um, computer programs to check their work, checking their work against each other, constantly criticizing uh, each other's work, to uh, make sure they got out as many bugs as they could. Um, and you are really struck by 
the honesty and integrity of the scientists who, who did that work. It's, uh, it's really going to be something very significant, I think. Yeah, it, it is, if if there's any possibility of it being heard or seen. Uh, and and that's, that's the question. I mean, now we're in a time... Um, uh, of of real some real censorship of so I, it seems to me I mean I uh, of of people who are talking about this thing and, and rather than that it's just you know it's just a blackout and and I'm kind of wondering about our future and talking with you Philip Kraske uh, by the way if you're just joining us on the Beloved Community he's the author of Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees a uh, novel uh, about uh, something that actually happens. Uh, in reality, and that are false flag attempts and uh, uh, conspiracies to um, elevate the the wealthy and the powerful. And uh, but I want to talk about: is there a sense of um, your novel almost seems even more hopeful than reality? <laughs> I wonder. Uh, yeah. it, I mean, it seems to me that gosh, uh, we could be ending down for a really dark time. And I'm I'm wondering yeah. what your thoughts are on that. What one one, uh, one reader made sort of an interesting comment to me. He said that, in a sense, your book has two endings, one optimistic and one pessimistic. Um, one in, in, in sort of the conclusion of the plot of the story, and the other in conclusion of the idea of the story. And uh, I was sort of struck by that, but, it, but it's true. It's... Um, um, there is uh, a real sense that the truth is going to be very, it's going to be very hard to get out any real truth that goes against the official version. And on the other hand, um, it's people who are inside the system, people who have access to the information. Those are really the only people that can oppose this terrible uh, regime of falsehood that we live under. Of course, it's very rare for anybody to go against that. For example, uh, Edward Snowden, for example, or uh, uh, Chelsea Manning. But of course, look what happened to them. And look what happened to other whistleblowers like uh, John uh, Kiriako or uh, William Binney. Or Julian Assange. End up in jail. So it's uh, really very a very sad sort of... Uh, uh, environment uh, that uh, we look at uh, these days with regard to the truth and and uh, public events. Yeah, and I'd also add to your list there, uh, Julian Assange, right now. Um, yes, of course. So, is this no? Obviously, false flags. That is simply you know attacking another country and pretending somebody else did it uh, to uh, advance a purpose is 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 is, is an old scheme, uh, and, and this has been done throughout history. Uh, but I'm wondering if there's something unique about America in, in all of this, um, and, and why it's... Could, could something like 9-11 really only happen in America? <laughs> I, and the reason I'm asking that question is, is because I think we also have a philosophy or a theology of, of American exceptionalism, of, of, so, of such goodness that people cannot ever look at the dark side. Um, no, I, I wouldn't say that America is exceptional in that sense. Uh, these uh, these sorts of things happen uh, periodically throughout history, and uh, you know the idea of America being an exception. Well, you know, you know, you can look at lots of countries uh, in a, in, a, in and say that in this historical period or that one they were exceptional. You could, I mean, where I live in Spain, Spain was a very exceptional country when it was going out. Uh, to the to the new world and conquering Latin America and and so on and that made a big uh, change in the world. I mean, before everybody there's uh, spoke Indian languages, and by the time the Spaniards were kicked out in the middle of the 1800s, uh, everybody there spoke Spanish. So and they were all Catholic. So you could call Spain an exceptional country as well. It sort of depends on you know, the time in history and, and what you're doing. Yeah, I guess what I was getting at is trying to find why it's so difficult for um, Americans to, uh, even when confronted with the evidence, uh, three buildings blown up in our faces, and yet um, we can't 
even look at it uh, uh, in, in, in any logical sense because they just wouldn't do that. They just wouldn't do that. That somehow uh, the leaders we knew. I don't know what it. What that. What is that? What is behind that inability? Uh, to be able to see what is well, true. I think, I think a big. I think a big part of that's a very interesting point, John. Um, I think a big part of it is that Americans have uh, a faith in their um, in their media that they think is going to tell them the truth about everything. And the objection that you always hear people making about the alternative theories of nine eleven is, no, 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 that can't be. Look, this is America. In America, everybody talks, and somebody would have talked if the whole thing had been, uh, uh, you know, had been faked. And that kind of thing is uh, just uh, nonsense, in, in my opinion. Um, in the first place, if you know some little part about 9-11... Um, because of course the, the the big the big players in it the, the the people who really put it together aren't going to say anything, but I would imagine that after nine eleven, lots of people who knew a little things about nine eleven went to reporters very discreetly and said, "Look, I, I know this about you know what happened, and it's very strange." And the reporter, you know, his eyes get big and he thinks he's got a Pulitzer Prize for the taking, and even in the best case, if he's willing to report it. He goes to his editor or his producer, if it's TV, and he says, look, I, I got this guy. He's, he's saying this, and, in, and he's even got one or two documents. And of course, the, the producer or editor says, well, you know, you've got something here that's absolutely revolutionary. So you've got to bring me two or three other sources, and they've all got to be impeccable, and they've all got to go on, on the record. So the idea that somebody's going to talk, yeah, probably somebody talks. But is anybody going to publish it? That's a, another question, and I think that the answer is no. And uh, also, a lot of people look around and they see what happened to other whistleblowers, as as we just talked about. You know, a lot of those guys end up in jail. And so, if you do uh, say anything to some investigator, at best, it ends up on an internet website. And of course, on internet, you can say anything you want. In a sense, internet turns everything into nothing. And uh, so, I don't think that the the argument about that that the media would have said would have discovered it would have said something. I don't think that goes anywhere. But I think that's a big part of America's faith in uh, in in public events um, that they think that they're getting the full story, and it's it's not so. Yeah, and I think it's also difficult, just even at the practical level of people talking to one another, uh, that um, the. Um, the level of of disdain of dismissal of it's a conspiracy theorist if you if you go there you uh isolate yourselves uh you isolate yourself from others that it's a it's kind of a, a social death sentence to talk about this taboo topic yeah especially if you're talking about anything that touches national security or foreign policy in those two areas the press very much follows a, you know, a pretty strict line. If it's domestic politics, like a Watergate or a Bill Clinton who's running around with other women, um, things like that, then, okay, the press can go after it. And I think that's one reason why people think that they're always getting the full story out of things. But it's, um, it's, it's a, a dichotomy that exists in American media. There are things you can go after uh, you know, tooth and nail you can go after. But there are other things that are off limits. And that's the way it has to go. I'm speaking with Philip Kraske, if you're just joining us. Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees is his novel, a mirror image of, of 9-11. But it's obviously this is, this is a novel, uh, and yet as a novel it can touch on, uh, on aspects that we might not think about that, uh, that a nonfiction book might. I'm thinking in the back of my mind here is the book uh, by the 9-11 Consensus Panel that uh, David Griffin and uh, Elizabeth Woodworth and, and others have, have come together called a book called 9-11 Unmasked and you can also go online, 9-11 Consensus. Um, 
And, and in there, they'll talk about you know, the official story is this, and then sometimes there's more than one official story. <laughs> it, it, it the official story changes um, uh, over time, and that happens in your novel as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, towards the end of the book, uh, the uh, official story, as a result of the efforts of the story's heroes, the official story has to make a big 90-degree turn. Not 180, but about 90 degrees, let's say. And uh, this is a parallel, I think, to the... um, on 9-11, the airplane that went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, um, the public was shown a sort of a smoking depression in the ground and assured that down below, an entire airliner had crashed into the ground, burrowed into the ground, and disappeared completely from sight, which, of course, is absurd. It's ridiculous. But you have some nice, uh, well-combed, uh, reporters who say this, and then and then people uh, people go along with it, and uh, you know it, it's it's just a ridiculous story, but it always depends on how the news, how the the information is prepared for the public, and at the end of my book, as I say, there's this big change in the official version, but it's all done very smoothly at first with little leaks, and then exclusive interviews and then a few anonymous sources, and then finally the the big change in the official story is made, and by that time, people are willing to accept it. So it all depends on on how how it's presented to the public. And that's it, and that's the point that uh, continues to come back to me. Will the public be able to awaken? (laughs) <laughs> to these uh, realities around us and and what does it take and what does it take to really allow people to take on this this matrix i guess of delusion um uh, or are we just hopeless automatons is there a neo among us in the movie matrix i'm talking about now is there a trudy among yeah. us is, is there is is there a uh, and i have to think yeah i have to you uh, have to keep going um and uh, what, what are your thoughts on hope Well, John, I wish I could give you some, but I'm afraid that I cannot. Um, I think that there is naturally among any people um, a a natural resistance to be told that, in this case, their own people, I wouldn't say the government, by the way, but their own people were responsible for 9-11 for one, not stopping it when they knew about it, and second, uh, making it worse uh, when it did happen by planting bombs in in the buildings and so on. Um, So I'm afraid that uh, it would take a major major break in protocol uh, for something to come out and really shake the public by the scruff of the neck and say, our own people did that. I don't think that that's going to happen. And even if it did, it would be a very, very hard sell to the majority of Americans. I do not think they would they would buy it. And yet, on the other hand, there are there are people who can because and 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 help because of things like your novel to be able to see. Uh, oh, boy, I'm I'm watching now. Like for example, when I I think it was uh, when the. It came out that Osama bin Laden was supposedly killed by, you know, Obama's administration. And, yeah. and I remember watching that live on TV. And, and because I had had some awareness of, of, of 9-11 and, and, and how these things were happening, I could see that this was where we were being set up, uh, that this was a, a fictional narrative. And, of course, there's, there's never been any actual physical evidence of, uh, of, of that Osama bin Laden was killed um, in 2010 or 11 or wherever it was, it's very likely he was killed way back in 2001 or died. And so that you, you could see, you can start to see, I mean, uh, where, how the, media, how the media, how the uh, uh, insiders within uh, people who run the narrative uh, operate. And, and, and that may be, uh, I, I would hope, a sign of hope that people can start to maybe calculate and see how things, uh, how, how we're constantly being deceived. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I, I think that's uh, that's a good point, uh, John. You know, I recently read a book uh, about uh, American prisoners of war in Vietnam, how they had been left in Vietnam and never returned. And back in the in the 80s and 90s, there was a great deal of scandal about this and so on. And I read a book by uh, uh, one of the uh, guy who was a congressman and also. Uh, um, uh, it investigated this a great deal. And one of the things that really struck me about his book, about all the research that he did and so on and so forth, his book covered, a, what, a 25-year period. And yet in all that time, John, only one person sort of discreetly talked to him and said, look, I know this. It was a Secret Service agent who overheard a conversation between Vice President Bush, George the first, or well, Elder Bush, and uh, another man after a meeting uh, with uh, in the Oval Office with President Reagan, and they talked about how the Vietnamese were flatly telling the Americans, "We want four billion dollars, I think it was, for us to return the rest of the POWs." A Secret Service agent uh, overheard this and talked to one of the authors uh, of the book, and Bill, Bill Hendon. And uh, it struck me that in all that time, and with so many people, obviously in the Pentagon, in foreign policy, the CIA, all knowing what the truth of the situation was, which was that uh, 500, 600 Americans got left behind and were never returned, um, only one person was really willing to step forward and... Uh, uh, and give the truth. And I think that kind of sums it up. Uh, it will be very rare if anybody talks and uh, gives any uh, um, solid information and, uh, and sort of blows the myth of 9-11. Uh, it's very sad, but I think that's the, that's the reality of it. Philip Kraske, uh, thank you for that. Eleven nine and the terrorist who loved bonsai trees is the book. Uh, how how have you had luck in promoting this? Have you had have you had much? Uh, uh, well, I've, and how can uh, people get the I've book? I've done too? some interviews, uh, some podcasts, and uh, I've written uh, some essays uh, about nine eleven. One of which uh, just appeared the other day. Um, it's on my website, philipkraske dot com, and uh, one or two. Uh, uh, websites and uh, well you know sales have actually been pretty good and I've uh, been uh, very uh, gratif uh, gratified by the comments that a lot of people have made about how uh, good the novel is not just as a thriller uh, as a good read but also uh, as uh, a work of literature and that's uh, very gratifying to me because what I try to write is uh, a sort of a literary thriller, sort of on the line of uh, John Le Carré or Graham Greene, and uh, and the reviews have been very nice. And you can get it on Amazon uh, as or, or where else? On your website? Yeah, you can get it on uh, any online book site um, around the world, and uh, Amazon has the Kindle edition. All right, and that book again is Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. Philip Kraske uh, with me today from Madrid. Philip, thank you so much uh, for this book and for spending time with me today. My pleasure, John. Let's do it again sometime. You've been listening to The Beloved Community every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO, then on the Pacifica Radio Network. Find my podcast at progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Be well. There's a blood red circle on the cold dark ground. You're tuned into KBU Community Radio coming up at 10. It's Express Yourself with your host, Jai. But first, this from KBU.
Cable Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of The Boys Who Said No, a documentary film screening on Saturday, September 14th at 7 p.m. at the Multnomah Friends Meeting House in Portland. During the Vietnam War, draft resistors openly refused military service to draw others to oppose the war. The Boys Who Said No is a documentary film featuring interviews with resistors and historians. Individuals featured include folk singer and activist Joan Baez, resistance leader David Harris, Cleveland sellers of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, and Muhammad Ali. Again, that's The Boys Who Said No, screening Saturday, September 14th at 7 p.m. at the Multnomah Friends Meeting House, 4312 Southeast Stark Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. It's creeping up on 10 a.m., at which time we will hear Express Yourself. On this episode, G interviews spoken word artist Ketz for the Soul and Jay Ketz, two brothers, about their spoken word journeys. And at 10.30, film at 11, KBOO's own Jenna joins the team along with a surprise guest to discuss the Jim Henson Company's The Dark Crystal, the movie, and now a series. At 11, Digital Divide, author, musician, lyricist John Shirley talks live in the studio about his two soon-to-be-released novels. And you can hear all these programs later on at kboo.fm or on iTunes or Google Play. For a third way to listen to all your favorite KBOO programming, download the mobile app today. And now, as promised, this is Express Yourself. This is Cats for the Soul. Hey, what's up? This is Jay Cats. And you're listening to Express Yourself on KBOO 90.7. Body. You are now tuned in to Express Yourself on KBOO Community Radio 90.7. I'm your host, Jai, and this show features talented spoken word artists, rappers, poets, and singers from around the Portland metropolitan area. On today's show, I have the utmost pleasure of talking with Portland-based 